Did you plan to be a filmmaker? I always loved movies. Uh, so I, I never thought one day that I was gonna make movies until, that, that happened in college. Uh, but I, I was always obsessed with movies. And um, you know, my brother and I would go like when I was a kid in suburban Chicago, like movies were like three fifty. So I would go to movies all the time. We would sneak into the R-rated movies all the time because <laughs> you could. Um, and we just saw everything under the sun, um, and it was like a big deal. Um, so you know, this is the time that we would wait for hours and hours and hours for Star Wars to open or the Indiana Jones movies to open. And you know, I would you'd be in line for like two and a half, three hours. Um, waiting and the lines would wrap around the theater and um, so I didn't plan to be uh, but it was always a, a, a passion and an obsession of mine since I was a kid. When did it become something you had to do? I took an incredible class in college. Um, uh, it was called the American Documentary Tradition. Uh, the professor uh, showed us pretty much the entire canon of classic American documentary films. We started with Nanook of the North. Uh, we moved into Penny Baker and the Maisel Brothers and Barbara Koppel, uh, Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman, um, really all of the major documentarians of the day. We watched all of those films and then we would sit around and we would talk about them, often really um, emotionally or, you know, some, you'd, there'd be crying, <laughs> there'd be, you know, a lot of debate. And um, I was really, uh, my eyes really were open to what, film could do, the power of film to generate those kinds of reactions in people really knocked me out. So that's when I got the idea that this is actually something that people do. Um, this is a profession and, and that's when I started to pursue it, um, really after that college class. What do you get from filmmaking that you don't get from anything else? Um, I, think, I think to be a filmmaker, you have to have an sort of an innate curiosity about humans. You have to want to know about people. Um, you have to want to know about all the different shades that are inside of them. The light, the dark, everything in between. Um, I think you have to really love people um, because it's not a solitary pursuit. It's a communal effort. It's collaborative. Um, so it's a combination of being curious about people and also really enjoying being around people. I mean, unless you're making little stop animation films in your garage, which is totally cool and you're by yourself, um, you're gonna be with people. And so filmmaking is this incredible opportunity to learn about the world through the eyes of other, other humans and also to create these incredible little micro communities um, who are your collaborators, you know, your, your writers, your cinematographers, your producers, your production designers, your everybody that you get to work with. It's like this, each film is this opportunity to be a little mini, mini family. Um, it can also be a mini disaster you know, or a big disaster, depending. Um, so it's just this incredible opportunity to learn a lot about yourself by being around other people, you know, who are kind of on this sort of common goal. You're all on this ship together, um, trying to get to this place um, in the service of a story. Yeah, I think it was it Francis Ford Coppola, and I use this quote a lot, but nothing invites chaos, like passion, and you know, just so, so yeah. like you're saying, it could be a wonderful experience or there can be a lot of things that yeah. can happen because it's it's high stakes, pressure, you have yeah. to make your day. If it's, you know, I'm sure with documentaries it's different. But. I think it's not any different with documentaries. I mean, I think people like to think that there's documentaries and there's narrative cinema and that they're, that they're completely different lanes of filmmaking, but there's so much that's the same. It's still story. It's still character. You still have to engage people. Um, in the most exciting situations, they're both for a big screen. So you have to think about how you're capturing the images and what you're, you know, the only difference really is that with documentary, it's unpredictable. You don't know what people are gonna say, you don't know what they're gonna do. Um, in scripted, for the most part, you are controlling all of that. So there's a thrill to it. Um, but I think all the same things that I learned in narrative filmmaking, I apply to documentary filmmaking. A lot of my favorite filmmakers are filmmakers that uh, have their hands deep in documentary as well. Scorsese, Spike Lee, um, Bennett Miller, um, people who um, go out and make films you know, about the world and real people and then go off and make incredible narratives as well. Um, and I think a lot of the tools that you learn as a documentarian are very similar, if not the same, uh, that, you, that you need as a scripted filmmaker. It's story, I mean really everything is in service of the story. 
Um, the only difference is that in documentary, it's life, it's true, it's real. Um, and you're in service of sort of doing the best job to bring that to light. But you still at some, some point have to craft where it's yeah. going. And even if it's showing you, you have to sort of paint, you know, for the audience perspective within that two hour. Absolutely, I mean, you're still using the same tools. You're still, you're still using editing, music. You're still deciding about composition and lighting and, and you're still using incredible cameras that we have at our disposal right now. Um, uh, graphics and animation, all kinds of stuff. Um, I think what's, it's a really exciting time to be a documentary filmmaker because those toolkits are expanding. You know, people's ideas about documentaries are like really, really expanding now. So you're seeing films that are, um, that you wouldn't have seen back in kind of the earlier eras of documentary. Um, a documentary used to be more kind of like Frederick Wiseman, like you go in, you show up at a big hospital or an institution, you turn on your camera and you let life unfold. I mean, now they've become a lot different, a lot more cinematic, a lot more, um, I'd say engaging in some ways. Like Sherman's March yeah. from years ago, and, and, and maybe to see it today, it would seem slow. I still love that film, yeah. and I love his little like sort of talking to the camera, and, yeah. and almost like a precursor to some reality TV where you have people doing these confessionals, oh. but a much different feeling from it. Yeah, than, definitely. Than, yeah. I don't think you would have uh, um, a, a Morgan Spurlock if you hadn't had Sherman's March. That's true, you know? right. Yeah. I was listening to an interview with John Pilger, he's a journalist, and someone in the audience yelled out at a Q&A, you know, there's this issue, you know, and went on and on, what are you doing about it? Because he, he covers various issues in his films. And he said, well, why do I have to be the poster child of, of having to do something about it? We can all do something hmm. about it nowadays. How do you feel about that? Because it used to be a select group that would be able to spotlight these stories and go and delve in. And now all of that's anyone anyone sort of with their own agenda or their own need to tell a story and a camera or a phone can do that. What are your thoughts? I think, um, I think ultimately what I'm, what I'm getting from the question is uh, kind of a larger, a larger issue about like um, the ability to get stories out there, right? I mean, we all have Twitter, right? Twitter's a storytelling device. Um, in X number of characters or less. Um, all of these device, all of these apps are, 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 are newfangled stories and we're all kind of technically our own little filmmaker. Um, I don't think that's the same as um, making a film. Um, there's a responsibility in making a film um, if you're making a film about something that's true. If you're making a film about something that's about real life or if you're even making a scripted film about something that's historical fiction, um, you know, you have a responsibility as the filmmakers uh, to do justice to that story. Um, otherwise, you're going to slip into the propaganda universe and just be filling the world with more of that. And I think filmmakers are bold and they're on the frontier, they're truth seekers. Uh, I think that's true of even the best scripted filmmakers, you know? I mean, I think back to Boys Don't Cry you know, and what Kimberly Pierce did, you know. That was an incredibly powerful, eye-opening experience that the world hadn't seen before. Um, and she did tremendous justice to that. I think we, you know, that's, I like that your site is called Film Courage because that's the kind of courage that, that it takes to be a filmmaker. You have to be willing to really tell the truth and not be sort of just agenda pushing all day long. Because people see right through that. And by the way, it's, you know, unless you're the president of the United States, who's agenda pushing all day long, you know, you're, you know, you're most likely kind of in your own little echo chamber. And you have to be prepared to take the punches that are going to come yeah. online or in written form from people that have various agendas, whether mm -hmm. they really didn't like the film or they're a paid troll, which is something that I guess has been around for ages, but now we have a, a real name for it. Yeah. And um, yeah. there's just all sorts of people in the peanut gallery that have an opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's so great about um, filmmaking period right now is we all have access to these tools that we didn't have before. You know, you can have a, a phenomenal camera in your hand. You can have a phenomenal editing device on your laptop. You know, when I started out, it's like, you couldn't do that. 
No, you had to go and you know wait by the AV cage in your high school or in your college and hope you got a camera. Then you had to take a camera out and you had to put film in the camera. When I started, you know what I mean. And then you know, and then you know, film became these tapes that we lugged around. I mean, we have you know, kids can make films these days. So it's an incredible time to be a filmmaker. Now it's the question really is okay. So what are you going to make a film about? When you feel that someone's got to make a film about this story. Why do you feel you need to answer the call? I think it's a very personal thing. It's very subjective. Um, for me, um, I'll be listening to public radio, for example, or I'll be reading an article, and I'll get a feeling. I'll get a hit. Um, sometimes that hit will be outrage. Sometimes it'll be compassion, sadness, uh, humor. It'll hit me on an emotional level. Um, and then I'll have a thought. Um, is this a story that could be a film? And then the next thought is, um, okay, so if this is a story that could be a film, is this a story that, that I should tell, that I'm able to tell, or I'm interested in telling? And then it kind of just goes from there. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of important questions we have to ask ourselves. You know, um, a very wise friend of mine, um, a fellow filmmaker, once said to me, you know, there's, there's basically three basic questions. Um, why this story, why now, why you? And you know, you ask yourself those three questions and then it kind of helps you, like, it gives you a little bit of a GPS. Oh, by the way, I'll say like, and that's not to say that like I was born to make a story about a supermarket tabloid. Like I never read The Enquirer growing up. I never cared about supermarket tabloids. I thought it was a joke, to be honest with you. Um, the, the other sort of important thing about documentaries is access. So this story found me in a way because um, a parent of one of our dear friends was in town and we all went out and had drinks and he starts you know, rattling off these crazy stories about his former life as a tabloid reporter for the National Enquirer and I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. <laughs> you know, I could listen to this guy all day long. So, so I knew I had a window into that world. You know, Before that dinner, I had no idea. I didn't know I knew anyone at the Enquirer. So I think access is a huge part of filmmaking, documentary filmmaking is you know it's it's one thing to have a great idea but i think how you get into that idea that's a huge part of it and that 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 can make your life um easier as a, as a documentarian so leaving that family event or that that dinner event whatever at what point did you start thinking in your mind i i have to tell this story you know i'd say about you know we had that dinner, he told us all these crazy stories about espionage and recording people and disguises and like, you know, booking hotel rooms next to Madonna and Sean Penn and just crazy stuff. And I thought, okay, this is an incredible movie. Um, and then at the same time, Jeffrey Tubin wrote an article in the New Yorker about the relationship between Donald Trump and David Pecker in the National Enquirer. And that's when it started to percolate, oh, this is actually a, a bigger film, you know? And so that's when we, uh, I, I, called my friend's father and I said, hey, do you think you could get other of your former colleagues to talk on camera about their experiences as Inquirer reporters? And he said, well, let me work on it. And that process took many months and some people refused my phone calls, some people slammed the phone down on us, um, some people said I'll consider it and never got back. Um, some people said I'd love to, but I have a non-disclosure agreement and I'm not gonna violate that because I don't wanna get sued. They were scared. But enough of them said, why not? I'll do it. I don't have a contract anymore. I don't have an NDA. Um, I don't, you know, this is a story that should be told. Let's do it. Um, and that's when we knew we had a film. And with all that information, with that access, that's when we went to the folks at CNN Films and said, hey, we have something here. And during those many months that sort of all this was coming together and you were getting yeses, noes, maybes, were you also going to the supermarket and watching people interact with the paper? Absolutely. I mean, that happened before that. So starting in late 2015, 2016, as the campaign was ramping up, uh, I would have these very bizarre sensations in the supermarket line looking at the tablet headlines because there were these really weird stories about you know, Hillary Clinton going to jail, she's hooked on narcotics, she has six months to live. 
Um, apparently every week she had six months to live. <laughs> um, and then, you know, all these glowing stories about Donald Trump and how he's gonna make America great again and yada, yada, yada. And it was like, this is crazy. This is the National Enquirer and I feel like I'm looking at a political poster in my face, you know, with my cereal in line at the grocery store. So I just started to feel like this is crazy. And then you start reading reports in other places about this kind of, uh, these strange bedfellows between the Trump campaign and AMI and David Pecker. And that's when it all started to kind of uh, peak enough curiosity to make us pursue a film. What was the peak circulation with the National Enquirer and what is it today? So in 1977, the National Enquirer had done something that it had never done before. It, it, it put a photograph of a dead celebrity in his casket on the front page and that celebrity happened to be Elvis Presley. It was a, an unauthorized photograph. They got it by sneaking somebody into the uh, receiving line. You know, as they were going past the casket, somebody had a hidden camera under a necktie and snapped a shot of dead Elvis. And that issue sold nearly 7 million copies. And it was the highest selling tabloid in the history of the world. Nothing had sold more than that. And that was the peak. Um, you have to understand that if 7 million copies are being purchased, that means that almost 25 million Americans were reading that, which was astounding in 1977 because for every, episode, every issue of the Enquirer, three Americans read it. You know, the mom would buy it, come home, then the husband would pick it up, and then somebody else in the household would pick it up. And then that's not to mention all the people that would sort of talk about it in the beauty salon or the barber shop or the you know, auto body repair or the grocery line. So it was really this like early form of social media, viral social media. Um, before we had these devices, we had, you know, we had these tabloids. Um, and then its low point, I would say, is now, right now, circulation is under 200,000, um, which is one of the lowest in its, in its history, if not the lowest. People just aren't buying it the way that they used to in the grocery stores because they can get all their information by just going like that for free. Yeah. Um, what's unusual about the Enquirer today is that those racks, those supermarket racks that the founder of the Enquirer acquired back in the early 70s are still there today. So the, the location of the paper is the same. And now what you have on the paper rather than Elizabeth Taylor or Burt Reynolds or Liberace is political messaging. That's what makes it so powerful today. Because how many, how many hundreds of millions of Americans go to the grocery store every week? That's the one thing that hasn't changed over the past 40 years. We're still going to the grocery store. And you're sitting there, you're waiting in line, the lines haven't changed, and you've got to look at these images. Whether you like it or not, it's having an effect on you. So it's not so much a certain story that stopped the circulation, it's just more how we consume news? It's just what happened to American media culture. I mean, The Enquirer became a current affair in hard copy and Entertainment Tonight, which became HuffPo and TMZ and BuzzFeed, which became Twitter, well, Facebook and then Twitter. So, you know, the largest tabloid in the world right now is Twitter. And what we have is the most powerful publisher of a supermarket tabloid sits in the Oval Office. He just releases episode after, you know, issue after issue of the paper every, I don't know, how many, sec how many few seconds does he tweet? Each time he does, that's essentially a tabloid. If you read them, the headlines feel like tabloids, the language, it's just ripped straight from the pages of the Enquirer. So that's what the Enquirer has become. The Enquirer is Twitter now. Did anyone try to talk you out of making this film? My accountant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, aside, aside from your accountant. No. Okay, no, no one said, don't, don't go down no. this rabbit hole, don't. The opposite. Okay. The opposite. You know, it's like some things are um, kind of self-evident. You know, I think for me, I'm interested in subjects that are, are relevant to our world that are happening now that have an impact on, on all of us. Um, so I was seeing this having a tremendous impact. Plus I'm really interested in the way that the media impacts our lives. I've always been really fascinated with that. Do you think you could have worked for the National Enquirer? Say 1980s, <laughs> 1990s? It's so funny. When the film premiered in LA a few weeks ago, um, a couple of these 
uh, Inquirer reporters were there on stage with me, oh, and uh, one of them leaned over and said, you know, Mark would have made an amazing Inquirer reporter. And uh, Amy Nicholson, who was our moderator, leaned in and she said, so Mark, would you have, would you have been interested in being an Inquirer reporter? And the answer is no. Um, I wouldn't have. I think that it's a real Faustian bargain to take that job. You are trading a lot uh, of your own ethics, really, uh, for that job. Uh, I like aspects of what they did. I, 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 I really believe in holding truth to power. I really believe that um, people who do things that are unethical, who are in the public eye, um, should, should be exposed. I think that I don't have any problem with that. Um, so some of the things they did, I think, were great in terms of that. Um, certainly the reporting they did in the OJ case, uh, the John Edwards situation, those were things that I think were um, in the realm of, uh, I'd say, good, good reporting. But for the most part, um, it's just been, I think, something that has helped degrade journalism and erode the public's understanding of what is a fact and what is not a fact, and that's dangerous. So no, I wouldn't have been interested in being a part of that. Had you heard the term catch and kill before? Before we started the film, actually working on the film in earnest, I hadn't heard the term catch and kill because the first time I heard the term catch and kill was when I read Ronan Farrow's article in, uh, it was April of 2018 uh, about Karen McDougal. And that was when, um, that was the first time that I'd heard about it. That's the first time that I think it started to get introduced into the news media in a big way. Um, in making the film before that, like we were shooting before that all came out, um, which was wild, that was kind of freakish, that we were out in the world filming The Inquirer and then this big revelation called Catch and Kill happens, that the timing of that was really unusual. But what we were learning out in the field from these old time Inquirer reporters were like, no, we never heard of the word catch and kill, the term catch and kill before. We always called it trade outs. Like, okay, we have some really sketchy information about this celebrity, you know, Bob Hope, for example. And uh, so we're gonna present that information to Mr. Hope's team, his publicist, his lawyer, his agent, whatever it is. And then in exchange for not running that story, He's gonna they're gonna trade out for a story about uh, Christmas at home with the Hopes or a ride on the golf course um, with, you know, and they did this for all of the major celebrities. So, you know, you can imagine how much dirt they acquired decade after decade of doing that kind of a practice. But they called it trade outs. They didn't call it catch and kill. Catch and kill was something that I first heard of through Ronan Farrow's reporting. And then there were also... By the way, his book is fantastic. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then you have him in the film as well, uh, briefly. Archival. Uh, yeah, archival yeah. footage. Uh -huh. And then there were also where they would purchase the rights to a story and sit on it. Was that like another form of catch and kill in a sense? Because then that story sort of was taken out of the hands of that individual. Yeah. That happened in, in a number of instances. And in the film, there's, there's a number of anecdotes that that go into that. And that's a very disturbing practice because a celebrity has been caught in the act of doing something really heinous. Um, and oftentimes it was celebrities who would go on to do things much worse down the line. And so you have to wonder, had those stories come to light back then and not been buried, would the, would the behavior that happened later have happened? And that's, that's where I think the story gets really chilling does the public have a right to know everything about celebrities, in your opinion, after having done this film? You know, there's like several camps on that. Some people think once you get into the public eye, your life, your secrets are no longer your own. The public owns you in some sense. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I mean, you know, why should that be the case? I, I, I think that a lot, of, a lot of gossip reporters, a lot of tabloid reporters use that, I think, to go to sleep at night and look at themselves in the mirror, but I don't believe that just because somebody is entertaining us um, uh, or compelling us with a great performance or uh, you know, engaging us with incredible music or whatever it is that they're doing, that we're entitled to know everything about them. I think that that's, um, I just don't think that that's right. Um, and I think that uh, the truth is, is that it's a business and that um, there are benefits that 
celebrities and creative professionals, artists, musicians get from being in tabloids. They get publicity, they, are promo they get to promote films, uh, people buy into their image, they buy into the narrative. Um, but I think this kind of ruthless pursuit of people, um, you know, hounding them with paparazzi, hounding their children, um, I, don't, I don't see the point. I think that's just more about a sickness in our culture. You know, this obsession with wanting to know everything about other people, this comparison, compare and despair, you know, um, and that's, that's, that's a larger issue. Well, one part that was especially chilling in the film for me was when one of the reporters, or maybe two, talked about how it was actual family members, not, not just disgruntled employees of a celebrity or a politician that called in tips, but actually like family members and supposed friends. And it was really based on jealousy. I was yes. just, that was, that was sort of like a real gut reaction and, and just, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? I guess you've already- I, I was fascinated mm -hmm. with how many people would sell, would sell people out. You know, that was, people ask me like, what's the, what, what are some of the most interesting things that you discovered in making the film? Um, one of the most interesting things was the length to which these Inquirer reporters would go to get sources around famous people. So like nurses who were checking people into hospitals, uh, valets, uh, maitre d's at restaurants, waiters at restaurants, barbers, beauticians, but also close family members. You know, disgruntled lovers, the sister that is not, that's the black sheep of the family, a child, whatever it is. Um, all these people were on the Inquirer payroll. So, you know, uh, I don't think it's any different today, um, but it is pretty chilling when you realize that, you know, you get famous, you get rich, you get powerful, and there is a price to pay for that, and that you'll become susceptible to people selling you out. Was there one thing that was just a huge eye-opener for you in doing this film and going I down? I think, you know, it's so, it's so interesting. The, I think the, the, the number of people involved in um, gathering negative stories about the rich, the famous, and the powerful, and then um, brokering those stories to curry favor or whatever they're doing, whatever reason it is why they would take a negative story and keep it, and then, um, uh, you know, that, that network was really eye-opening. The fact that that exists, and not just in the Inquirer, on a much broader level. You know, somebody in our film says, you know, that there are thousands of these deals made every day to protect the rich and the powerful. That's, that's pretty eye-opening. That's a very sobering thought. You know, that if you have money, um, and you are in a position of power in the country, in the culture, that you can use those resources to maintain a bright and shiny image. And I think making this film made all of us very aware of just how often that happens. Sure, wasn't it Orson Welles who had numerous things that were thrown at him for the movie that he did from a powerful family that wanted to silence him. Yeah, a powerful family in the news business. Right. Yeah, you know, you make a film like that, naturally there's gonna be backlash. And I think there was someone who warned him, like, don't go to that hotel room, there's, there's a story waiting to happen there. Yeah, you know, yeah. so yeah, it's happened since the- The guy from Touch of Evil is in that hotel room, don't go in there. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think we're drawn to these papers, even though we can flip through them in the supermarket line and think, well, that's fake. Yeah, that's embellished. That's not a real photo. But what is it in us as humans that we're drawn to this? Oh my God. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I think that would take probably a, an anthropologist to answer that question. <laughs> Somebody really understand. I mean, I think this is fundamental human nature. Like this goes back to, Shakespeare and the Greeks and the Romans before that. And actually you can even probably take it back to like the cave paintings of Pompeii where it's like the, the sexual acts of the rich and famous were displayed for all to see. You know, I think this is part of human nature. We're, we're drawn to the lurid. We're drawn to the, um, the seemingly unattainable. We're drawn to the um, salacious. I think it's, you know, Jung would talk about this. I think this is like, this is the shadow side. Um, and I think we're seeing now that 
while it's no different from cave painting times, we just have so many more outlets for it that it's everywhere you look. You know, our culture is kind of, it's kind of like consumed the culture in a way, this obsession. And, uh, you know, it's not going back in the bottle. Well, you talked about in the film that um, Generoso Pope, the, the founder of the Enquirer, had said that the ideal reader was, was it Missy Smith in Kansas? Yeah. And it was this, you know, good suburban housewife, you know, probably, who knows, went to church on Sunday, I'm, I'm adding that part, but, and then there was a part of her that just enjoyed sitting down at the end of the week, reading through this, and knowing that these celebrities or these different people were just like her in some ways. Do you think that reader has changed? The person who's consuming this has changed? I don't. I don't think she's changed. I think that General Pope was really uh, kind of a, a marketing genius to have identified the ideal inquirer reader back in the late 60s and early 70s and to really understand almost everything about her. You know, he understood what she would want to talk about with her girlfriends at the beauty parlor. She understood what she would want to show to her husband when she got home. Um, and she also, he also understood what her husband would want to read. He called it a Hey Martha. He would pick up the inquiry, would read about another UFO invasion in Roswell, and he would yell across the hall, Hey Martha, you've got to read this. This is, you know, there's a three-headed alien that landed in Roswell. Um, so, you know, he, he understood all that, and I don't think that that has changed so much. I think what the inquiry did really well was blend all these different stories into one publication so that the reader kind of, in a way, was convinced that they were getting things that were good for them. Miracle, miracle cures, fad diets, all that kind of stuff. Stuff that like piqued their, their curiosity of the supernatural, you know? A Madonna that has, you know, cries blood, you know? Um, uh, a talking dog, you know? Pigeons that communicate with each other. Um, all, that, all kinds of stuff. Um, and then all of the celebrity stuff that people have been obsessed with forever. Um, so he created that perfect formula. I don't think that formula has changed. Um, and I think everyone who has bought the Inquirer since and controlled the Inquirer since has understood that. I'd say the difference now is that the, the current, you know, in the Trump era, you know, the people who ran, the powers that be who ran the Inquirer recognized that Missy Smith in Kansas City, who was the ideal Inquirer reader, was also a voter and had political power and rather than feed her miracle cures and fad diets and what Lonnie Anderson and Burt Reynolds were doing, they were feeding her political propaganda. That's much more dangerous. When do you think that changed with like the Reagan era? I remember seeing a lot of the Reagans on, on the front of the Enquirer. Never negatively. No? Okay. I mean, you know, maybe there was a story about Ron or maybe there was a story about Patty, you know, going off the rails or something like that. But they were not super regular features. The Enquirer did not really touch politics until Gary Hart. Uh, and that's okay. really when it happened. <laughs> um, when they realized that a politician could be as scathing and scandalous as, as the most scathing and scandalous celebrity. So... Do you think Americans realize that the National Enquirer helped to elect Donald Trump? You know, I don't have the ability to answer that question accurately. I don't know what the Americans, American voters thought. Um, I know that he was elected. Um, and I know that a major supermarket tabloid dedicated a tremendous amount of its front page space for months and months and months to that effort. So the only thing that I can surmise is that, and, and also endorsed a political, a presidential candidate for the first time in its entire history. They'd never endorsed, the Inquirer had never endorsed any presidential candidate before Donald Trump. So, you know, the writing's on the wall. It doesn't take, I think, a rocket scientist to figure out that they were very much in bed with the Trump campaign and had a major stake in doing whatever they could to get him elected. Measuring how successful that was I don't know how you do that, but um, the film was an attempt to kind of connect the dots and say, well, how in the world did we get here? How did we get here? Because we hear so much about Facebook and sort of these people, whether, you know, from whatever country, trying to influence and, and show different things that'll pull emotional triggers and things like that. And so we're, we're looking to Facebook to sort of point fingers and say, well, that's what happened and that's helped to sway people. 
and their vote. But something that was so innocent, seemingly innocent, which is right there as we're getting our groceries and we may not even purchase it, but we still pick up on those headlines. It's still sort of imprinted. I just wondered, many people, it seems like, hadn't really talked about it, or maybe I just didn't see that until watching your film, the, the, the effect that that could have had. Well, you know, so there's an incredible um, media uh, watcher named Brooke Gladstone. She's a public radio reporter, and she has an incredible uh, podcast, a program called On the Media. She also wrote a book called The Influencing Machine which is one of the greatest books, I feel like it should be required reading in high school for everyone, to really understand what the media is in our culture. Um, because ultimately, this is about media literacy. Like, do you understand when you're standing in the grocery line looking at the National Enquirer, that you're looking at a paper that is propaganda? Um, or do you assume that it's a piece of journalism that's held to the same standards that other papers and outlets are. You know, so I think we're, it's on us. You know, everybody likes to point fingers. Oh, it's, it's Facebook's fault, it's, it's the Inquirer's fault, it's the New York Times' fault, it's CNN's fault, it's Fox's fault. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, Fox is a propaganda machine. There's, it's, it's, if you don't know that, and you're watching it thinking that it's real news, Perhaps you need to sort of educate yourself on what real news is, um, because it's not real news. Um, it's propaganda. Um, but there's propaganda all over the place. There's biases all over the place. Um, so I think, you know, for us right now, it's on it, it's on us. It's on every person, every American, really, um, to pay attention to where they're getting their sources from. You know. I, you know, you look, you, you watch what you eat, so you might as well watch what you consume in terms of media. Well, I love Democracy Now! and The Intercept, but I don't see it at the checkout counter. It's not, the headlines aren't there. Yeah. I have to go on my computer to look at it. Yeah. So this is so in your face, whether you dismiss it as trash or you think it's real journalism, it's still there, it's still shouting a message. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's really powerful especially because it's, it's there, you know, an, an, an issue of the Enquirer is on the newsstands for, what, seven to 10 days? So that's, you know, think about how much money a political campaign would have to spend to, to create a poster and put it in a place like that for that amount of time. You know, that's a lot, and, and this is free. Sure. You know, Trump campaign didn't pay the Enquirer to do this. This is free advertising. Once you felt you had this green light to go ahead or you felt you'd have access to these journalists, how was this setting up the interviews? What was that process like? Um, tough. It was tough because um, we didn't, you know, some people said yes and it was easy and we were able to kind of make times and places and meet them and others uh, led us along for quite a while and, you know, to the really down to the wire day of kind of stuff. So we had to really um, be patient and just let things play themselves out. Um, you know, tabloid reporters are very smart people and um, shrewd and want to kind of know what, uh, what you're up to. Um, and uh, so gaining people's trust and saying, look, this is an opportunity for you to have a space to tell it like it was for you. Um, rather than me imposing all my ideas about what it was on you or trying to frame you in a certain way. Um, so that took a minute to, to get people comfortable. Um, and then it was just about like finding these locations. And that was really, I had an incredible producer named Jennifer Ash Rudick um, who had access to all these beautiful places um, in the various cities that we were filming in. And I have a tremendous partner in my cinematographer, Michael Pessa who um, just has an incredible eye and the ability to just make really anything look epic. Um, and that's what we wanted to do. You know, we wanted to find these locations that were a little bit over the top because the Enquirer is over the top. And you know, chasing people around and trying to get these crazy stories is an over the top career. So we found all these great um, houses and private clubs and restaurants and bars and things in New York and Palm Beach and, um, and Los Angeles. And, uh, and that's where we 
we situated these people. Sometimes they were their own homes, but most of the time it was these locations that we found. It was almost as if you were in the same shoes as the, as the reporter because it seems like they went through a lot of cat and mouse with people as well. Yeah. Leading yeah. them along. Oh, and, definitely. Mm -hmm. you, there was a lot of phone time and, inter and emails and back and forths and kind of, you know. Um, but for some. And for others, it was like, yes, of course, I'd love to do this. This would be great. I, um, no one's ever asked me to tell my story before, so let's do it. I'd say that was a good number of them. And then there were a couple of like really hardliners that kind of dug in their heels for a while. I thought it was interesting to see some of them that express, some of them said they didn't really feel that badly about some of the things that happened and others said that they felt it wasn't a high point in their career and I just thought it was interesting to see the human side of what's behind this paper. Yeah. The, the sort of the, the people doing the groundwork and. Yeah, that was a huge, um, one of the reasons why we wanted to make the film was to get into the minds of these people, these, these tablet reporters and to kind of figure out what would make somebody want to take a job like this. Um, and you know, the film really goes into that. The film really looks at, okay, so what, what was this career like? What were, the, what were the perks? And what were the downsides of it? And that was really fascinating. And the stories that were killed, even though the reporters went and got them. Oh yeah, and a lot of these reporters did amazing jobs mm -hmm. getting the stories, but then getting the stories printed was a whole other thing. That wasn't up to them. That was up to the editors and ultimately up to the people on top. You know, it's not a comfortable movie. It, it's not made to make you comfortable. It's a, it's, it's a film that's going to agitate you and hopefully get you thinking. Um, so if, if it does that, it's great. If it alienates some people and they think that, and it pisses them off, great, great. That's why we're making films. We're not making films to sedate people and, or make them super comfortable or serve up for them exactly what they need. You know, there's other, there's other things out in the culture that are doing that. You know, the purpose of a documentary film or really any film I don't think is to be an opiate. I think it's to be like some smelling salts, you know? Sometimes people don't like what they're waking up to. It's not our problem. Were there parts of the story that you wish you'd followed up on more closely? Were, were there things that you didn't get? Were there things that you felt you left out or maybe you shouldn't have put in? I think I'll tackle the, f the first one because that really resonates. Yeah, I mean, we wish that we could have dove way deeper into the catch and kill story and gotten into really what happened with Karen McDougal, what happened with Stormy Daniels, like, you know, but we realized that if we had done that, that would have been the entire film. And then we wouldn't have been able to really answer the first question that made us make the film, which is how the hell did we get here? We really wanted to create a, uh, sort of like a, um, a reverse engineering of how we got to this crazy moment where, you know, women are having their stories uh, suppressed for money um, and where um, powerful political figures are, are partnering with powerful media entities to keep negative stories out of the public's attention in order to rise in the polls and, 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 and um, all of that stuff. Um, we, uh, so, but we, of course, I would, I would love to have gotten an opportunity to have included Karen McDougal and Stephanie Clifford in the film. Um, you can only do so much. You know what I mean? I think that's also, that's, that's the challenge too, is like, when do you, what's the frame around your story? What's the time frame? What are the resources that you have to work with? You know, 60 years of American pop culture, it was a lot to tackle. Um, so we just had to make choices, you know, and do the best we could. Once you saw the first cut on the editing timeline, what were your thoughts? What did you feel that you needed to tie up or finish or, or add or? Oh, I mean, editing is, arduous and crazy. <laughs> yeah. My first thought when I saw the first cut was, my God, we got so much work to do. Um, but I had the incredible opportunity to work with two amazing editors, Andrea Lewis and Ben Daughtery. And so we were like a, a three-headed monster um, and they're incredibly gifted editors, incredible filmmakers. So everything was put through this incredible scrutiny, you know, times three, because we had three heads in the editing room. I mean, it's it's, 
it's amazing to have one editor, it's an incredible gift to have two. And we needed that because we had so many hundreds of hours of archival to sift through and all these stories to tell from the 50s to the 2000s and just so much work to do. Um, but that allowed us to get really, um, really kind of intense and tight with our storytelling. Um, so the first cut, you know, I mean, I think most of us who make films are kind of cringing at the first cut. Sure. <laughs> but um, yeah, but what it is though at the first cut, it's like, it's a, it's a benchmark. You get there and, 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 it's, and it's a great moment because you know that you've got something to work with. You know, it goes from like total amorphousness to something. And aside from obtaining the interviews, um, was getting clearance on the archival footage the, the second most sort yeah. of time consuming thing? Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, got to work with an amazing archive producer named um, Aileen Silverstone. She's worked with Jordan Peele on the Lorena Bobbitt project. She's, she's really, um, I'd say she's kind of like the, the guru of archive. And uh, she was amazing to work with. And we, um, but it was, it's, it's a lot of that is just like needle and haystack kind of stuff, especially if you're looking for archive that the public hasn't seen before. A lot of archive most people are familiar with. You know, there are classic shots of, especially with celebrities and stuff like that. So finding the rare archive, that was, that was really challenging. And then uh, figuring out whether or not we could afford that, uh, we ended up fair using a lot of stuff, which was a godsend because that saved a tremendous amount of money from the budget. Um, and fair use, I think, is a real filmmaker's gift um, to be able to know that you're actually entitled to use certain things depending on how you use them, gratis. And that, that, was, um, that was amazing for us. In a certain time period too? Yeah, like, all that. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, there's very strict rules and you have to spend money to hire a really responsible law firm to go through and vet literally every single shot, every frame. It's a very arduous process, but you ultimately end up being able to use material that can make your film. And that's what we, that's what we did. We had so much powerful archival footage. One that stuck out to me, and maybe this has been around and I just hadn't seen it before, was the George Clooney sort of yeah. proclaiming to the, the crowd what, what an invasion of privacy and how damaging this is. And, yeah. Um, you know, you don't really think about that. You just think, I want to know about George Clooney and his love life. But then to see him as a human, and you can see it on his face, that it is damaging and we don't know everything that's been said and how much is true and how much isn't. But just the fact that it's a human and their life is there for all of us to pick apart was very powerful. Yeah, that, that piece of archive is incredible. Yeah, that yeah. was. All the archive around the Princess Diana uh, tragedy that, that we found I thought was, was pretty amazing. Much of it I hadn't seen. Like I hadn't seen shots of her and her children in on ski slopes before and the press just trying to just constantly invade her life like that. And you just realize that she just had no, she had no privacy and they hounded her. Right. You know, and you could see how ultimately that resulted in a tragedy. Sure, and how she handled it too. She was quite polite. I remember the yeah. one scene that you had. And it yeah. was almost, I mean, it made you sad. At least it did for me. It was very emotional to yeah. see that she didn't, she wasn't ugly about it in that moment when most people, you could see why people would throw punches or do different things. I mean, if this was something that was a daily occurrence. Yeah. It was interesting that you showed that, you know, it was a very pro-American, you know, support our troops for some of the, the stories and, and the political uh, showcasing. But it have, if it had been a little more, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, if, if, the, if it had been less so, less pro-American, do you think that the paper would have survived? You know, I don't, ha I don't have the answer. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's so hypothetical. I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, General Sopope and the editors of the Inquirer knew their readership. They understood their readership. And their readers were patriotic. Their readers were proud to be American. And so they served up to that readership uh, what would appeal to them, you know? Charlton Heston stories, you know, all kinds of stories, stories of the USO, um, uh, you know, 
that's just understanding their readership. And they continue to do that through the years. I mean, uh, you have Steve Koz, who was the former editor-in-chief for 10 years of the Inquirer, really at its kind of heyday in the 90s in terms of the stories it was breaking, say, you know, at, at our core, Steve said, at, at the core, the readership was, was, was patriotic. So you see the content of the paper reflecting that. Um, I have no idea what the paper would have been like had it been otherwise, because how would I know? Sure. Yeah. yeah. What lessons did you learn from the National Enquirer on storytelling? Oh. <laughs> um, I think um, that, uh, what lessons did I learn from researching the National Enquirer? I, I learned that um, you can take a story and you can spin it in all kinds of ways depending on the way you frame it, depending on the information you choose to include, the information you choose to exclude. The guys at the Inquirer, the men and women at the Inquirer, they were expert at that, they were experts at that. And so uh, what I learned from working on a film about the Inquirer for a year is that um, there's a real art and science to that. Um, what I also learned is that uh, that doesn't serve the truth. Um, that serves circulation and sales, and you can spin a story and make it seem like something happened when it didn't, or make innuendo and really sway public opinion about a person or an event one way or another, but that's not telling the real story. So I learned that too. Do you think people wanna read the real story? I would hope so. I mean, why not? I mean, but the thing to remember for me is that the real story is never from one single outlet. It's like, you know, Kurosawa made Rashomon, right? It's like any event can be viewed from seven different perspectives and everybody's coming with their own biases and their own filters about what happened. But there has to be some objective understanding of what truth is. Otherwise, we're living in a chaotic world. You know, I know I'm sitting here looking at a, 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 a human being in front of me and she's, connect, you know, we're, we're talking. I know that this is happening, right? How do I know that this is happening? There's some sort of an objective understanding here of truth, right? So I would call that a fact. You know, the fact that we are having a debate about what that word means truly, that's really alarming to me as a filmmaker, as a human, as a parent. Um, you know, so I hope the film at the very least will get us, will get people kind of continuing to talk about that. Um, cause I personally believe that, uh, we, we do want to know as much of the story as we possibly can.